Hi there, and great to have you along with me, Cleanna Nianlone, for another podcast edition of Spoken Stories. This collection is called Spoken Stories Independence, as each writer started out on their story by considering what independence might conjure up for them and where it might take them today, 100 years after Ireland's War of Independence. And so, in its way, this Spoken Stories series is a creative contribution to the country's decade of centenaries. Together, the stories illustrate how variously and entertainingly an idea can be interpreted. Here now is writer Mary Costello about her story called Assignation. I thought about what independence means at a personal level. Freedom, choice, personal autonomy and how scarce that was in the early decades of our own independence. Our young free state in the grip of poverty, the church, immigration. In the 1920s and 30s, immigration to America was like a death. People would not be returning. The story is set in Manhattan in 1938, and Marion is a young Irish woman working for a wealthy American family. The story unfolds over one day, culminating in a certain realisation for Marion. And here now is Assignation by Mary Costello, read by Katrina Niwarahu. It is a bright morning in mid-April 1938. Marion takes the little girl's hand and they walk four blocks along Broadway to the school. She steers the child through the morning crowds. Men in suits hurrying to work. Delivery boys on bicycles. Gangs of schoolboys. Elizabeth looks up at Marion and waits for the nod before they cross the street. But for the difference in eye colour and Marion's plain wool coat and worn boots, she might be mistaken for the child's mother. Later, Marion strips the beds and takes the dirty linen and laundry down to the basement and loads the rotary tub, then switches the machine on. She keeps Elizabeth's clothes separate from the adults, washing them by hand in the zinc tub, taking extra care with the little dresses and blouses and underwear. This is her third spring in the country, her third year in the employment of the Cook family. She knows now what lies ahead from day to day. The housework, the care of Elizabeth, the grocery shopping, the running of errands for Mrs Cook. She gets Wednesday afternoons off, during which she wanders around Greenwich Village, alone or with her friend Bridget Burke from Sligo, stopping to buy pretzels or roast chickpeas from a street vendor, or trawling through small stores for trinkets. In the evenings, Marion takes Elizabeth on her lap and reads to her in the playroom. At 10.30am, she knocks gently on the study door before entering. Mrs Cook, seated at her bureau, says, Come on in, Marion. She is folding a sheet of cream notepaper, placing it inside an envelope. How was Elizabeth this morning? she asks. Very well, Mrs Cook. Happy going off to school. Little sweetie. 
Mrs. Cook's father is a former governor of Connecticut. Mrs. Cook herself is a member of several clubs and charities. The Ladies' Aid Society, a bridge club, a flower arranging club. Every Friday she volunteers at a soup kitchen. Turning slightly in her chair, Mrs. Cook hands Marion some letters for mailing. Do you have anything special planned for your afternoon, Marion? I'm just... No, Mrs. Cook. Nothing special. Well, you have a nice time, dear. I'll take Elizabeth up to Macy's for some new summer dresses, and you'll be back for her bedtime. The President is delivering another fireside chat this evening, so Mr. Cook and I will say goodnight to her a little earlier than usual. Hannah, the housekeeper cook, is seated at the kitchen table writing the shopping list. Behind her, gleaming copper pots and pans hang from hooks above the stove, and on the open shelves sit enamel containers and glass jars with flour, sugar, spices. Inside cabinets there is an array of chinaware, serving platters, tureens, silver-domed warmers. In Marion's first weeks here, Hannah encouraged her to write down the names of the new foods, applesauce, cantaloupe, pickled beets, and the ingredients of each dish. She taught her that oysters are served raw and lemon pudding is decorated with shards of green angelica. Before the stock market crashed, the Cook family had had a butler, an upstairs maid, and a chauffeur-come-handyman. When Elizabeth was born, there had been a nursemaid, and then, when she was four, Marion was hired. Everything, this civilised life, cast its spell on her immediately. The elegant rooms, the angelic child, the endearment spoken by husband and wife, darling and dearest. In her poise and mannerisms, Marion began to emulate Mrs. Cook. She took care of her hands, bathed regularly, shampooed her hair, laundered her clothes. Caring for the child, as it turned out, had not seemed like work at all. She walks three blocks to the grocery store on 18th Street, stopping at a mailbox to mail the letters. She waits in line in the store and hands her list to the storekeeper. She nods to another housemaid from 23rd Street. Back on the street, she passes three small boys playing marbles. Occasionally she meets a man's eyes and, briefly, something, a flicker of something, passes between them that shames and frightens her. This afternoon she is going on an assignation. This is what Bridget Burke called it. She is to meet Bridget's cousin, Dennis, in Washington Square Park at 4pm. They met once before, outside St. Joseph's Church after Mass one Sunday morning. His hair was jet black and his eyes were brown and he had a bashful look. But after they moved away from each other, he found her eyes again and smiled. 
and he did not seem bashful at all. Marion moves around the drawing room and the dining room, dusting, polishing, plumping up cushions, fixing the long silk drapes in their ties. At two o'clock, she collects Elizabeth from school and they walk home through Washington Square Park, the child's hand in hers. They stand for a while at the fountain. Elizabeth is a quiet child who rarely shares news from her school day. They pass an old lady on a bench with a small white dog on a sheepskin rug beside her. They find a vacant bench and sit. She remembers Dennis Burke's face from that Sunday morning outside the church. She has had moments, little visions, when she imagines she is walking along a street beside him, his reassuring presence reminding her of the feeling she'd had walking down the street in Westport with her father and her brother Morris, the way she'd felt enveloped in their warmth and protection, the smell of tobacco, their manly certainties. After a while, Elizabeth turns to her. Tell me about the day your papa left the barn door open, she says. She often tells the child stories about home, about her sister Eileen, who is the same age as Elizabeth, and Maureen, who is 18, and the twins, who were 14, about the fields and the sheep, the lane down to the shore, and the fool of a dog, Elizabeth reminds her. Don't forget the fool of a dog. The more stories she tells the child, the further that past life seems to remove itself and become someone else's life. One day my father left the barn door open, she starts, and the horse got out and trampled on the bicycle in the yard. My mother had no bicycle to go to Westport on after that. Occasionally, when the wind rises and gulls circle overhead, she is caught by something. An intimation of home and the glittering bay. Her mother lifting a pot off the fire and turning her face towards the window. They will have forgotten her by now. There are days too filled with work. Cows to be milked, crops to be sown. To indulge in the luxury of remembrance. A pigeon hops into view and then a candy wrapper blows along the path and comes to rest before them. Elizabeth is watching it too. She has a way of getting down under things, a way of following Marion's faint, soft thoughts as they form. Marion thinks of Elizabeth's nature as pure and sublime, and she, Marion, its guardian. And she is sure that from such nature will grow refined feeling and a tender soul. Sometimes, on the street, they pass a line of men at a soup kitchen or strikers carrying placards or a gang of roving boys or a paper boy, thin and hungry, calling out in a raucous voice and she can feel the pull or tug in Elizabeth's hand as she slows and stares at the men. They have been separated from each other just once, when the family visited Mrs. Cook's family in Connecticut for three weeks last summer. 
to be parted from the child for one day is hard to bear, let alone twenty-two. Finally, the hour has come. Her good dress is lying on the back of the chair. She sits on the edge of her bed. In summer, high up here under the eaves, this small room becomes unbearably hot. She lies awake some nights with the window open, listening to sounds in the distance. Men coming home from the bars, laughter, curses, cries in the night air. At dawn she watches the sun rising over the rooftops and remembers home. The day before she left, she and Eileen and the fool of a dog crossed the strand when the tide was out to the little island of Inish Aline. They walked up to the ruins of their grandparents' house and sat quietly on the grass, pulling daisies, hardly speaking. That night the house filled up with neighbours, relations, the local priest. Well-wishers pressed money into her hand. Tea and sandwiches and whisky were served. She sat close to her mother for a long time. The singing and dancing went on until the early hours. Originally it was Morris who was to come out to America. But when the time came to book the ticket, her father could not bear to let him go. Let Marion go instead, he said. Her hands are trembling as she buttons her dress. She stands before the mirror. She need not go at all. She can, if she wishes, simply go down two flights of stairs to the playroom and read the book about star constellations until Elizabeth returns. She glances at the clock. He had a kind face, kind eyes, that morning outside the church. He had come out from Ireland only a few weeks beforehand. She remembered her own first weeks and felt a great surge of pity for him. He has a good job, a good wage, Bridget had said when she told Marion that Dennis had asked about her. He's a longshore man. That means he works in the docks unloading ships. I know, she said. In those first weeks last summer when Elizabeth was in Connecticut, she had found it hard to rise in the mornings. She tried to imagine Connecticut, a big house with a lawn and a gravel drive, and cars parked at the front door, cousins, a grandmother. With her chores done, the afternoon stretched before her, empty. Her limbs grew slow and heavy in the heat, and one afternoon she went down to Elizabeth's room and lay on her bed. What if I die here, she thought. She had not seen any graveyards, other than very old churchyards with a few ancient tombstones behind locked gates. The arrangement is that she will meet him at the east entrance to Washington Square Park. She walks past the arch with the traffic passing underneath. A little swarm of robins suddenly rises from a tree. Further on, a preacher is standing on a wooden box, calling out to the tramps gathered round. Repent. The sun is starting to give her a headache. 
she moves into the shade. She rounds a corner, then stands under a tree about fifty yards from the east entrance. She can see people entering and leaving, and others standing around waiting. He is there, tall, dark-haired, in a grey jacket. He glances at the faces that pass. He turns and shows his face and her heart jumps. He takes out a cigarette and lights it. As the smoke curls out of his mouth, she realises that the time has arrived. Thoughts and memories rise and collide with each other until she feels sick and dizzy. She leaves a hand on the tree to steady herself, but she cannot stop this collision of memories, and for a moment she sees her grandparents' house, with the roof fallen in, and her mother throwing her head back laughing, and all of them going to Mass in Newport on Easter Sunday morning. Summer evenings there and here too, the sky streaked with pink, the sunset almost too beautiful to bear. All of these things now colliding inside her, confusing her, and the sun too blinding, so that she cannot think straight, cannot think what to do, or how to be, or who she belongs to. She had gone outside that night before she left home, to escape the music and laughter and the intense scrutiny of others. It was around midnight, a warm summer's night. At the gable end of the house, neighbouring men stood talking and smoking. The O'Malley brothers from the other end of the village were there. Tom, the older one, was about Morris's age, and Liam was her own age. She smiled as she went past. She opened the gate to the pony's paddock and entered, and walked along the wall until the music and the voices grew faint. The moon was out. She could hear the sea in the distance. She would never again have a daylight view of the bay or the islands. She walked along the stone wall to the place where the shore came into view, and she stood looking down at the waves, lapping. And then she felt a presence behind her, and when she turned, the two O'Malley brothers were there. Startled, she greeted them uncertainly. Something about them, their silence, the way they had crept up on her, unnerved her. Neither of them spoke. Tom, the taller one, stepped closer and said her name, Marion Joyce, in a mocking voice. He put his hand on her arm. Confused, she stared at his hand and was still staring at it when Liam stepped forward on the other side of her. I have to go in now, she said, and she went to move. But they blocked her way to the right and the left and when she tried again, they gripped her arms and their bodies became a wall against hers. She went to kick them, but her long skirt constricted her movement. 
Suddenly her right hand was free, and she lashed out and scratched one of them in the face. Then, abruptly, she was pushed to the ground, face down, hands held behind her back. She heard laughter, and remembered the men at the gable end of the house, and she called out. They were pulling off her stockings, her undergarments. Stop, stop it, she cried. Please, she begged. A stone lay on the ground, inches from her face. If she could free her hand. Then one of them spoke. You go first. With sudden force and in one swift movement she was pitched over onto her back. The sound of a belt buckle. The flash of white skin in the moonlight. She tried to kick her legs free. Then she raised her head a little. I'll tell on ye, she said coldly. A chuckle from deep in the throat of the one holding her down. Who'll ye tell? You're going to America in the morning, and you won't be back. Later, when the second one was on her, she heard the waves on the other side of the wall breaking on the shore, and she had an image of the tide edging up along the sand. Closer and closer, so that the waves might break over the wall and reach her head and her body, her hair, and into her parched mouth would flow the salty water. This is her chance. Dennis Burke might be her only chance. She takes a deep breath. But what does she know of him? What does she know of his private life, or the private life of any man? He is, from what she was told, a good man. She will have a home, children. She might have fine rugs and silk curtains. But how to get to that point? How to know what to do now, this minute? How to know what to say, when to smile? How to hide the shame. Because he will know. A man will know. He will see something in her eyes and know. And if he does not know now, he will know later. On a wedding night, a man would be able to tell. She leans out of her hiding place. He is still there, by the entrance, pacing back and forth. Suddenly he walks out the gate, leaving the park. Her stomach lurches. But he returns and walks off in the other direction. She begins to follow. He turns onto the south path. She keeps well back, close to the trees. He turns onto the west side and continues on to the north side, and she follows him until he has circled the whole park and he is back again at the east entrance. He stands and turns his head to give one last look, and for a second she thinks he has seen her. But then his whole body turns and he walks out of the park. 
She leaves by the north entrance and walks up Broadway. Elizabeth and her mother will be finished in Macy's now. They will have taken the elevator down from the children's department with their purchases. Little dresses wrapped in tissue paper, in boxes. Afterwards, they might go to Schraff's for ice cream sundaes. She wanders around the streets for a long time. She will be paid on Friday. She will go to Schraff's herself some Wednesday afternoon. She thinks it is better to be free and independent. She thinks of the evening ahead, the playroom, the drawings in the Constellations book, Orion, Pegasus, Sirius. She had arrived into this family three years ago, and in the child's presence, she had felt absolved. She turns, walks back along Broadway. In a few hours they will be home. She quickens her step and her heart begins to quell. There is, she thinks, something in life after all. There you heard Katrina Niwarahu read for us the story Assignation by writer Mary Costello, specially written for Spoken Stories Independence. Next time on Spoken Stories, writer Kevin Barry reads his new story, A Pirate Dreaming. And you can enjoy all the commissioned fiction featured on Spoken Stories Independence wherever you get your podcast and on rte.ie forward slash culture. From me, Cleanna Nianloon, thank you for listening. <laughs>